What does it mean to be a, a follower of Christ? That's not a bad question, it would seem, to think through and have straight in our minds and hearts. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? If we were to put that question to the man on the street, to the, the everyday survey that we would do just you know out there in the mall or in Walmart this morning, uh, we would get answers to that question that would go, I, I would imagine something like this. To be a follower of Christ, well, I guess it means you're against a bunch of stuff. Or you're supposed to be nice. That's what the general populace would likely say in answer to that question. What about the the uh, the typical occupier of the pew? Now, I, I use that metaphorically. Obviously, we don't have any here. Um, the, the, the churchgoer, the, the usual Christian, what, what would they say, perhaps, in answer to that question? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Well, you know, read your Bible. Obey God's commands and be nice. What's the problem with those answers? They are woefully inadequate. They are caricatures. They are hardly telling the whole story. There's so much more to the answer to that question. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? I mean, if that's where we're going to stop in terms of our answers, I mean, that's like saying uh, the Super Bowl is nothing more than just a football game without any understanding of the event and the hype and the pageantry and the money at stake and the commercialization and the party that surrounds I mean, the whole Our whole culture is caught up. It's like saying that's just a game. When there's so, so much more. So very, very much more. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? It means greater things. Greater things indeed. Let's, uh, if you've got a Bible, I urge you to now turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17 as we're moving through this little series looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha. If you're trying to find 1 Kings, it's very simple. It's in the Old Testament. If you find 1 and 2 Samuel, move to the right. If you find 1 and 2 Chronicles, move to the left. 1 and 2 Kings. We're in 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17. We began in the latter part of chapter 16 last week as Elijah and the, the context is just beginning to kind of uh, become clear. Uh, here we're moving in a little bit closer, a little bit further into this. Um, we're really going to be looking at verses 7 through 16, but I'm going to start in our reading at, at verse 1. So 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. 
And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Let's pray together. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Oh Lord, make this our prayer. We thank you. We thank you for your word that guides and instructs and convicts and comforts. And we ask that you would meet us here in this hour. You are the one who has brought us here. You are the one who has ordained this moment. You are the one who has spoken your word, inspired it, preserved it through these years given us the privilege now to hear it. And we ask that you would now do this work in our hearts that we would be changed. In your name we pray. Amen. We were made for more. We were made for so, so much more than we tend to settle for. And that comes out, we feel it, that unsettledness, sometimes in the, in the strangest most surprising places. I, I think if, if you're still long enough, although this sounds almost impossible to do, if you're still and quiet in your mind and your heart enough during the course of watching this game today, you might just feel that stirring towards more during the course of the first and second half and maybe the halftime as well. As you're watching the strength 
and skill and speed and agility on the field, you might find yourself being pulled toward that, somehow attracted to that. The, the creativity of the ads, the ingenuity of the products that they're trying to get us to, to buy, you might just find your, yourself being stirred towards, what's, what's, is there more? Is there more in, in, in all of, of that? Um, what I'm trying to say is simply this, that we are made for more, we want more, we tend to settle, though, for so much less. Lesser glories, shadow glories, glimpses of so much, things that are so much grander. Um, the thing is, we were made to walk with God. We were made to walk with God and God alone, the true and living God, the one who's described here as the Lord, uh, Yahweh, the God of the promises, the God of Israel, the one who has worked in space and time and history. Brings us to our text here. Who, what, are, what are we reading of here? Let me remind you of, of the original context of what we find here, um, what we're reading about here. Uh, the first readers of First Kings have just come out of this horrific time we know now as the Babylonian exile. And their hearts are, are stirred up and churned up with questions. Why did this happen? How could this happen? And where do we go from here? This account, First Second Kings, is part of the answer to their questions. How could this have happened? And where do we go from here? Now, what we're reading about here in particular in this portion of 1 Kings, we know that this is the period of time of, of Israel living. Well, the, the kingdom is worse than divided, of course. It's been conquered. Um, but at this stage, it's, it's uh, in this uh, period of time here in Elijah's lifetime, hundreds of years before the exile itself. Um, Elijah is living in a time where there's this kingdom to the north that we, is called Israel, this kingdom to the south that's called Judah, the kingdom to the north is, is, I'll just say, is apostate, drifting from God, rebelling against God, led by this king that we know is, is described here as Ahab. Ahab is the, the worst thus far in a line of kings, hardly a great accomplishment, I would say. His queen, Jezebel, we'll talk about her a little bit more as we go. Um, Jezebel was given wholeheartedly to the worship of this God known as Baal, and not just in, as an option, not just in addition to the worship of the Lord, but completely in uh, opposition to the worship of the Lord there in the kingdom of Israel. Now, in, the, in that context, in, in chapter 16 and 17, it's where we are right now, in that context comes this man named Elijah, this prophet with this announcement, this pronouncement of a drought. And in the historical context of this drought, some events take place that make it very clear that the Lord alone is God. Whatever else everyone else may be saying about Baal, the Lord alone is God. And even more, the Lord, the God of Israel, is calling His people then and now to walk with Him. Now think with me. The Lord, none other than the Lord, the God of Israel, that's who we're talking about here, is calling us to walk with Him. 
Now that then means, when you consider the astonishing nature of, of what that implies, that means we've got to be prepared and ready for greater things. Greater things than we tend to settle for. Greater things that we tend to lower our sights for. Um, greater in what means? Well, um, what do I mean by that? We see that here in your outline. We'll see it here in a minute as we go through the text. A greater God, a greater mission, and greater faith. Being called by Him to walk with Him means it has to be so much more than we are tending to settle for. A greater God, a greater mission, and a greater faith. Let's look at this in, in turn. First, called to walk with a greater God. How do we see that here? Look with me again in verses 7 through 10. Um, after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. When the word of the Lord came to him, then the word of the Lord came to him, that's Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. Now, Elijah's being commanded to, to leave this place, this brook where he has been, for some period of time, east of the Jordan. And if you look at the map, he's now to move some miles north, northwest actually, to this little town on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea called Zarephath. What little we know about this little town, it was an industrial town, a manufacturing center. It's not just some podunk little place. Um, but that's your travel log version. If I was, to, if you were to try to get at the, well, why Zarephath? Well, let me tell you about Zarephath. This is, is a lot more to it, and, and you get the clue as to why Elijah is being sent to Zarephath in this little phrase here in verse nine. Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. We read about Sidon briefly last week in verse 16. You know the significance of Sidon? That's where Jezebel is from. That's her hometown. This is Baal's backyard. This is the heartland of Baal worship. And that's where the Lord is sending Elijah. Now that's significant. Because now we're talking about the territory of Baal. And as Elijah is being sent into the territory of Baal, there's a gauntlet being thrown down, a challenge being made to Baal. The, the worshippers of Baal, the priests of Baal, they had a ready explanation as to why there was a drought. And clearly this region is affected by the drought. That's why this widow is suffering as she is, and the whole region is, is drying up as it is. Now they had a, a great and ready, logical explanation for this. You see, Baal, once a year, this time of year, every year, died. That's what they believed. And then, later on in the year, and that was the period of the drought, you understand? That's why this God of the rains, and the God of the storm, and the God who brought the fertile lands and the crops, that's why he had a drought, because he was dead. And then later in the year, every year, he would rise. And then you would have flourishing, and then you would have the rains would come, and that sort of thing. Here's the problem with that whole worldview. It's a lie. There is no God of Baal. There is a God, a, the one true God, who never dies, at least in this sort of way, and who is in control of all creation, including the storms, including the rains, 
and hence, and by the way, who can send a drought and can preserve whom he will, how he deems fit in the course of the drought. Now by the brook Cherith, he deemed it wise to provide for his servant Elijah through ravens. After he feels like that time has come to an end, he sends Elijah northwest to Zarephath, and he provides for this man again through this widow. It's interesting. I don't know if you picked up on this, but it's the same phrasing, I have commanded. I have commanded twice. I've commanded the ravens. I've commanded the widow. Who's behind this? It's the Lord and is caring for his servant, Elijah. The point being, God's power. Oh, Israel. Oh, Israel, don't you know? God's power is not confined to a geographic region. He is the great God over all things. Now, they needed to be reminded and refreshed in that, and so do we. As we tend to bow down and worship our own Baals. And they are so much lesser, and He is so much greater. Now, you're probably thinking at this moment, I don't have any Baals, thanks. Yes, you do. Here's how you can find them. Here's how you can go on a false God search in your heart and in your life. Ask yourself these questions. When times are difficult, when the pressure and the squeeze is on, where do you turn? To whom and to what do you look? Where do you seek the solutions and the solace and the strength? To whom and to what do you look for hope in the midst of the chaos and the problems and the stresses that come into your life? Or let me put it this way. What if it was taken from you would leave you feeling completely exposed and vulnerable. That is your God. You understand? You do that. Let the work. Let the Holy Spirit do His work, and as you're wrestling with those questions, and you will discover the Baals in your basement. We have them. And they are so lesser. And he is so much greater. And we've got to be grappling with that. That's the first thing. We see here a greater God. And we were made to walk with him. We see here also inferences about a greater mission. One that we've got to have our eyes set and reset all the time upon. Now, how do we see that here? This, we, from the beginning... The Lord gave His people a message. A message that is, is alluded to here, you might say, in, in this longing, the physical longing, for, true, for, for, for food and for drink. For that which would, would meet the, the, the needs of the body is, and the Lord's provision of that is alluded to in his, his providing for our deepest needs. That which would meet the deepest hunger and the deepest thirst. From the beginning, it was made clear that He and He alone was going to provide in that way. He and He alone, our, our security and our, and our standing before Him met by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. From the beginning, it's just becoming clear as we read through the Scriptures. Clear and clear, even as we read through 1 Kings. And this was a distinct message. 
It was unlike any other, and it still today is unlike any other. Elijah and this widow, neither one of them had any claim on God. He owed them nothing. It's all of grace. There's no way you can try and do enough and work enough and try hard enough to appease the wrath of the gods or do enough and work hard enough to manipulate them into doing what you want. No. He is the one true God, and this is all by grace. And this was clear from the very beginning. That's the great message. That's the good news, the good news of the gospel. And that message was meant to be not just embraced by the people, but carried forth by the people, through the people, out into this world. And so we see Elijah being sent to Zarephath. He's not allowed to just stay there by that brook, that brook Cherith. He is impelled. He is thrust forward, like the apostles' words we read about in the book of Acts. They were told to go, they didn't, and they were forced out of Jerusalem. Read about that. It's true. We see something of that here with Elijah. He's being impelled, he's being forced out, forced northwest into Zarephath. This was something that was, it was, the message was the same, the mission was the same from the beginning. With Abraham, we see it. With his own calling back in Genesis, blessed by God's grace. What, for his own sake? To keep to himself? No, to be a blessing for God's glory. From the beginning, this great message, from the beginning, this great mission, meant to be embraced, yes, but carried forward out into this world. Now, also from the beginning, God's people have struggled with that, that, that dynamic. Our sad response from the beginning has been to see these privileges that we have been given as rights and things we have owned and things that are ours. And so then pride begins to swell and we become, as Jesus describes in the parable of the two brothers, now usually it's the parable of the prodigal son, but it's also the parable of the older brother and we become older brothers. And this event in particular, and this whole dynamic, has over time became a scandal for God and for God's people. Keep your thumb here in 1 Kings 17, and, and let's go to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 4. Jesus actually speaks of this event that we've just read about here uh, Elijah and this widow here in this little town of Zarephath. And, and look at how he discusses it. And look at how the people respond to him. Now this is at the very beginning of his ministry. The very beginning of his public ministry. In Luke chapter 4, he's, I'll just pick up in verse 24. Luke 4 verse 24, he says this. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his, his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now they, of course, applauded Jesus at this point and said, 
That a boy, Jesus. We are so glad for this reminder. And it has warmed the cackles of our hearts. And we are... Re- no. Verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus is trying to press this message upon their hearts. And they are pushing back, and quite literally. Oh Israel, oh Israel, don't you know of your greater mission? Don't you know not only of this great message, but of this great purpose to which you have been called? And we need to be reminded of the same thing all the time. We, we get so easily uh, drawn into the lie and the myth that we are here for ourselves. And it is, it is all about me. And it is not. Yes, we have been given a great message. It is the greatest one that there could possibly be. The best news. But we have been brought into a larger story given a purpose, given a privilege. Paul describes us as God's co-laborers in 1 Corinthians. Co-laborers in the gospel. That is, Think about that. That is an extraordinary way to be described. An extraordinary honor for us to be given. Do we believe it? Ours is not to live isolated, and ingrown lives, but to be engaged and involved in the lives of people around us. Why? That the world may know. The world may know, may hear this news, and may know this God who has come once for us and is coming again. We are called to walk with this God in this great mission. That's the second thing. Now the third thing, as we begin to get and continue to get a, a greater sense as to who this God is and a greater sense as to what this mission is, that's going to require greater faith. And we see that here too. What was asked of this woman? What was asked of this widow? You thought, think about that. The extraordinary thing that Elijah is asking of her, the brazen request that he is making of her. What do we know about this woman? We know that just simply by the fact that she is a widow in the ancient Near East. We know that she is vulnerable. We also know here that she is destitute. She, humanly speaking, is without any provider or protector. She's also living in this region called Sidon, heartland of Jezebel and Baal. But somehow, when she lays eyes on Elijah, she's able to perceive, and we don't know how, who he is and who he represents. And that is pretty extraordinary. Something's going on here in this woman's life. And she responds in an extraordinary way. We'll pick up here in verse 10. So he arose as Elijah and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there. This is so sad was gathering sticks. 
He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And listen to her response. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, what Elijah has asked of her, just a, you know, the simple meal, if you could even call it that, in ordinary circumstances would have been no big deal. These are not ordinary circumstances. This woman really does believe that she is preparing what is going to be her last meal that she's going to share with her son. What happens? What happens? What takes place? A miracle is what takes place. Now, all the miracles in the Bible, please understand, are, are, are never, God never... Um, does one of these, Old or New Testament, to show off. But to show forth. To show forth His power. To show forth something of His character, who and what He is like. To validate the messenger, in this case Elijah. And also, one last thing, to point towards the great renewal that is coming upon all this world, all creation. Now, all those things you see with this particular miracle, the validation of the messenger, the showing forth, the demonstration of who God is and what He is like, and pointing towards this greater healing and renewal and restoration of creation and what is coming. And Well, let's read what came. Verse 13, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This woman heard the promise and then acted in faith on it. And this miracle takes place of this provision. Oh Israel, don't you know that walking with this God is going to mean your instincts are going to be contradicted? And you are called to greater faith. Some of us, I know, no doubt, could, could share stories of supply like this and provision. That may be not as dramatic, but just as real. Times in, in your life when you found yourself living beyond the realm of your abilities to figure out, to work through, to gin up a solution to this mess, this problem that you are in. And if a solution was going to come, it could only come through God, and it did. Some of us could speak to that. And some of us 
Or also, maybe it's just the same group and, and then all of us together are wondering, well, how do we come to see something like that and experience something like that? Well, it only comes through a step of faith. That kind of miraculous supply and provision can only come when you put yourself outside that comfort zone and you're actually living, leaning into the Lord completely. So far, again, beyond your ability to take care of your own needs. That's when His provision of those needs takes place. That's when the jar never is spent and the jug never runs empty. Now, that's not, I'm not talking about a blind leap of faith and I'm not talking about some kind of irrational irresponsibility. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what this woman did. She's, it's not a blind leap of faith. I hate that term. That's not a biblical concept at all. It's a step, yes, sometimes into darkness because you can't see what's there, but it's a step based on the light that you have. So what's the light this woman has? That this is the Lord, the God of Israel, speaking to her through his prophet as to what he's going to do. And so, based on that, she steps. We do that all the time. Taking such steps based into the unknown, based on what we do know. And that's what the Lord is calling us to all the time, all the time. This God who again and again and again has and is and will prove Himself faithful and is calling us to greater faith and trust in Him and our service to Him. Ending with this, who is calling us then to walk with Him? The Lord, the God of Israel. Again, think, what's that mean? The Lord, the God of Israel, is calling us to walk with Him. Might that not then mean some surprises along the way? Some, some unexpected, unplanned things along the way? If this God is calling us to walk with Him, think with me just how we are surprised again and again by, by creation. Every year, historical finds in archaeology are made. Or, or um, new, new creatures are discovered down there in the depths of the oceans. Or astrologers, astronomers, excuse me, astronomers discover new planetary bodies up there in the heavens. Or um, doctors are discovering greater and greater complexity about the human body. This is, these are all surprises about creation. Should it surprise us then when God surprises us and calls us to greater things, defying our expectations, pushing, pushing the, the envelope just a little bit? Or, or just think in terms of interpersonal relationships. If you stay with one person long enough, if you stay with one person long enough, you will find yourself becoming increasingly surprised by what you discover in them. If you're willing to listen and willing to pay attention, it's like the final frontier. That's with another finite creature. Like you, like me. Now what about the God of all creation, the Lord, the God of Israel, who's calling us to walk with Him with that in mind, we must be prepared and ready for greater things, greater to walk, just to serve this greater God with a greater mission, with greater faith.
Let's pray. Lord, it is beautiful how you are demonstrating all these greater things in this lesser place, this small town in the context of starvation and near death in the home of this unnamed widow. We thank you. Thank you that um, you've made us for more, more than we settle for, and are so... We are, as Lewis described, like the children in the alleyway, playing with the mud pies, when you call us to that holiday at the seashore. We ask that you would help us to see the ways in which we are settling, and settling for so much less. And, and is even as you are stirring up within us that holy discontentment, help us then to see increasingly, and to step and move towards what you're calling us Two, to serve a greater God and a greater mission with greater faith. We ask you to help us to hear these things and to live them out. Lord, we are so thirsty and we are so hungry. In your name we pray. Amen.